Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. On The Advertising Show, it is Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Happy to be back with you live here this weekend. The Advertising Show is being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show, a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. We always promise a great show, and today I think we've brought the, uh, well, I'll call it the A-list to the show, because uh, our guest today is Jane Moss, and I don't want to embarrass Jane, but we think highly of her, and now she's written a book as well. Another book. Uh, another book, and uh, we'll, we'll tell you more about uh, Jane here in just a moment, but uh, uh, the new book, Mad Women, The Other Side of Life on Madison Avenue in the 60s and beyond, and how timely mm-hmm. Mad Men uh, just uh, came back on television and has really uh, created a buzz as well, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. So this is really cool to get the source <laughs> to understand what uh, what was going on back then. So we're happy to have Jane. Uh, Jeremy Kent's going to be with us here in just a little bit. Jeremy is our European correspondent, and uh, he will bring us up to date with what's going on in Europe. And, and a lot of good things are going on. You know, in our world, the economy is coming back just a little. And uh, I'm, happy right. to, I'm happy to see that we have uh, uh, business being a little bit more aggressive, advertisers being more aggressive, and and uh, getting back to business, but uh, it's uh, it's it's nice. I, I don't know how. What about uh, in your experience, Brad? What are you seeing here? Well, this I time of the year? couldn't agree with you more, Ray. It's wonderful, and we're all uh, seeing our four hundred one ks grow and back to where they once were, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think things are looking good, and for an election year, uh, you kind of expect that, I guess. Uh, you know, everybody kind of the. Well, we don't want to get into politics, but... Uh, well, what you're saying, it's a hopeful attitude. I think so. I think so, on either side of the aisle, so to speak. What do you have going on there? Well, you know, uh, Google has said that they have spoken to film studios about offering Android users the option to buy titles. Google Play, formerly known as Android Market, only rents movies currently, but the company has shown an interest in giving handheld owners the option to buy. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure watching a movie on my iPhone or on a, a smartphone-like device right. is really what I would do. Would you? I mean, that's I think small. depending upon the location, you know, obviously it's not the most ideal yeah. opportunity. You mean if there. you were stuck out in the uh, Fargo, North Dakota, and you needed to look at a movie. and That's exactly what they the had. The Holiday Inn you were in didn't have a TV, and you needed to see something. That's <laughs> what it's you're saying. Tiny TV. Yeah. I like that. But I think it has applications, and I think it's also very relevant in the fact that uh, many things are moving in that direction oh, yeah. as well. I mean, wow. literally, um, well, I, I can't see our phones getting bigger. <laughs> I wonder what impact this will have. Uh, you know, children growing up now, they'll go to movies, and uh, the movie theater will have uh, screens as big as what are now large TVs. And they'll think that that's... That's uh, a big screen, right. <laughs> You know, they're building, speaking of, and I don't get this, uh, because with all of the new opportunities for viewing movies and such, I guess the theater experience is still one of the big things that people uh, do indeed enjoy. I was in Austin a couple of weeks ago, and they're building um, a movie theater there Hmm. that's like 128 screens. Really? uh, And, I mean... How do you support that? Mm. I mean, I, I just can't imagine. You know, they charge a lot of money to get into the movies these right. days. And the Oscars tried to get a little promotion going recently for the uh, 
the movie business, trying to give their audience, our audience, the TV audience, to the uh, idea of uh, you're watching something about movies. Let's show you and remind you how it is to go to movies. And I think we mentioned uh, a month or so ago, mm-hmm. I haven't been sitting in a movie and had anybody walk up and hand me popcorn or uh, – uh, a, a soft drink, uh, not that I drink soft drinks, uh, as they were doing during the Oscars. So I was wondering, why are they doing that? Did you, did you see that? Yeah, yeah. It was very odd, I thought. I mean, I know what they were wanting to do, but I'm not sure they conveyed the message. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, by the way, there's a new reality show uh, coming out here, uh, in addition to uh, the fact that we returned to Mad Men and have returned to Mad Men. Mm-hmm. It's called The Pitch. Um, and it's an interesting thing. Stuart Elliott of the New York Times wrote this also a guest here in the advertising show. Right. Uh, contestants on reality competition shows perform tasks like seeking spouses, racing around the world, eating bugs, losing weight, living in houses rigged with cameras, working for Donald Trump, which I absolutely love that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the series is called The Pitch. After the pitch process, which agencies compete for assignments for marketers, the pitch appears on AMC, uh, which is seeking to increase its offerings in the unscripted uh, genre that included... Comic Bookmen, Talking Dead, a live talk show about uh, a script series called The Walking Dead. Sneak preview of the episode scheduled uh, on the 8th of April after a new episode of Mad Men. So it's hmm. going to be right after Mad Men. That's, that's a good position cool. for it, yeah. So um, AMC drama about pitches and other aspects of Madison Avenue. In the 60s, what they're saying, Charlie Collier, who is an AMC president and GM, what we're looking to do is... In the reality realm, was to tell stories uh, heavily character focused to echo the channel's scripted series. It wasn't born out of Mad Men, he says. It was born out of a moment that it's universal when you have to come up with a great idea under mm-hmm. pressure. Well, that never happens. Well, it's uh, that's interesting, Ray. I'm surprised it took him so long to come up with something like that. You know, a reality show doesn't cost nearly what a scripted TV program does. And uh, yeah. Pan Am, uh, the uh, program that show. currently on ABC, is taking advantage of the interest in Mad Men. And I think they've done an outstanding execution of life in the 60s. They've taken that social aspect and shifted it to Pan Am, uh, uh, an air carrier we once remember, and remember a the logo on top carrier. of the building in, uh, in New York. Which oh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful now, I think, the Met Life Bill or whatever. We'll have to ask Jane. She's in Manhattan. So currently. Pan Am building is, okay, it's been changed yeah. to an insurance company. I think, right? at last I heard. Now, again, I am not up on that. So There's a lot of cool stuff that they're doing associated with the Pan Am name. They're selling if you go to uh, online or Google it, they have Pan Am merchandise. Mm. You can actually buy those bags. Those and bags, huh. and they're not cheap, hmm. uh, but they're very cool. I wonder if they still who owns that logo, or if it's public domain, or well, what? there was an airline I saw that still had the Pan Am logo on it. That was a legitimate airline. Well, that was in Mexico, and it was just some guys got together and close put the. Uh, <laughs> put the plane in the air they're flying old 727s <laughs> or something jane moss is our special guest jane is uh, so sweet to join us this weekend uh she began her advertising career at ogilvy and mather as a copywriter in 64 and eventually became a creative director and agency officer leaving in 76 to become a senior vp at wells rich and green and uh she was uh, named president of the new york advertising agency earl palmer brown in 88 a Matrix Award winner and Advertising Woman of the Year. She's best known for her direction of the I Love New York campaign. She is author of Adventures of an Advertising Woman and co-author of the classic book How to Advertise, first published 
in 77, which, by the way, is still in print and has been translated into 17 languages. Today she serves as a marketing consultant to a number of Fortune 500 companies, conducts marketing seminars for the Association of National Advertisers. Jane is in New York. That's where she lives. Recently authored the book Mad Woman. The other side of life on Madison Avenue in the 60s and beyond. And you've got to know that a lot of people are just going to eat this stuff up because it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting time and uh, a lot of great uh, um, things that we can get out of that time, including, uh, obviously, on the Mad Men show, but uh, the book uh, has kind of a different approach to it. Matter of fact, let me get the, the back cover here. Love what George Lois says. It says, um, let's see, in this damn funny book, The Talent of Jane Moss, who lived through those days of struggle and sometimes humiliation, tells it like it really was. And for George Lois to say, tells it like it really was, is something very impressive because uh, we know George has a different attitude about the Mad Men television, or television yeah. show. He's been on the show several times, and he's used the F word uh, indiscriminately throughout our programs in the past, and that's That's George. why we have the little thing that goes boop. Uh, intermittently. Well, he wore it out one program, I recall. It, bro- it broke, yeah, it's yeah. unfortunate. Hello and welcome to London Soho for the European News Desk. This week, there's a warning on new rules for alcohol advertising, Disney attempts to rescue John Carter, Coney tops the viral charts again, and brands line up for Mad Men. Advertisers have warned the UK government that their new alcohol advertising strategy will be largely ineffective and could have a serious impact on TV ad revenues. The government aims to combat binge drinking by setting a minimum price per unit of alcohol, banning incentives such as two-for-one promotions, and a further tightening on alcohol advertising. However, the advertising industry has hit back, claiming that alcohol advertising is already banned around shows that are likely to attract teen audiences, and further restrictions could impact on programme production. The industry also claimed that despite regulation, teens are exposed to alcohol marketing online, and any further restrictions on TV are likely to prove ineffectual. John Carter, the movie that cost $250 million to make and then bombed at the US box office, has seen Disney take unusual steps to rescue it in Europe. Disney has emailed a two-for-one offer to its entire 800,000-strong UK database in the hope of attracting larger audiences. However, the US experience seems to have been repeated in the UK as John Carter grossed just over $3 million in its first weekend, with that figure falling to just $1.5 million for the second weekend. Campaign Magazine's viral chart shows that the Coney 2012 film has held on to the number one spot for three weeks. There was strong competition from Guinness with its St. Patrick's Day viral, Round Up Your Mates, but the 30-minute video designed to raise awareness about the atrocities of Ugandan warlord Coney has now been shared more than five times a second since it was first published on 5th March. The fifth series of hit US TV show Mad Men is about to air in the UK and with it comes some classic ads from the 1960s. American Airlines are showing First, which plays on the airline's innovation heritage, highlighting that the airline was the first to accept credit cards and develop a stewardess college. Second up is the Milk Marketing Forum with Pinter Man. The 60s commercial shows a gymnast bouncing on a trampoline with a voiceover pointing out that he's superbly fit, drinking at least a pint of milk a day. This is Jeremy Kent at the European News Desk for The Advertising Show. Shelley Lazarus, who is chairman of Ogilvy and Mather, calls Jane Moss a real-life Peggy Olsen, right out of Mad Men. Quite an interesting description. Yeah. Jane Moss is with us today here on The Advertising Show. Jane, what a pleasure to talk to you again. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm going to be coming to Houston in uh, May, so I look forward to seeing you then. Let's not forget that stop in Fargo. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm going to Fargo before Houston. We do have a worldwide audience, so everybody in uh, Fargo, get ready for Jane. I don't think you're ready for that, but uh, do your best. Jane, uh, what a wonderful book, as we've been commenting on today's program, and uh, certainly you have a, a predisposed uh, audience, I would think, with your wonderful title, a, a writer yourself. Uh, you would expect someone... Uh, as yourself, would come up with a clever title. But before we get into the book, let's talk a little bit about the process of writing the book. Obviously, you're a fan of the TV show Mad Men, and I'm curious, at what stage watching the show, Jane, did you come up with the idea for the book? It was really only about a year ago that Ken Roman and I were talking. Uh, uh, Ken called me to say he was upset he had just learned that a book was being published in England called The Real Mad Men of Madison Avenue. Um, and, of course, Ken had recently written the brilliant biography of David Ogilvy, and he, in, in the course of preparing for writing that biography, he had studied and done research on Bill Burnback and Rasta Reeves and all those early mad men, uh, and he said... I could have written that book. Why didn't I think about writing a book called The Real Mad Men of Madison Avenue? And I commiserated with him. Why didn't you think of it, Ken? What a big opportunity there. And, of course, Ken and I, you know, as, as you have mentioned, uh, collaborated on how to advertise, and we have remained friends and co-authors. And so I felt terrible for him because he could indeed have written The Real Mad Men of Madison Avenue. And we hung up, and I said... Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> There's another book here, but, you know, it's not about mad men. It's about mad women. And I called Ken right back and said, how would you like to collaborate on a book called The Real Mad Women of Madison Avenue? Hmm. And he said, always gracious and generous, dear Ken said, this is your book, kiddo. You go write it. Only don't call it The Real Mad Women of Madison Avenue. Just call it Mad Women. And so I... The next thing I did was uh, send an email to our uh, darling editor at St. Martin's Press. I said, what would you think about a book called Mad Women, about what it was really like to be a woman in the 60s, you know, the Mad Men era? And he wrote back in two minutes and said, how would you like a contract and an advance? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I wrote him back and said, I love you. <laughs> and there we were. So it, it only took me about five months to write the book. Well, that was awfully nice of uh, Ken and selfless individual as he is. Uh, again, uh, Ray and I were just talking before you came on the air, and we both uh, are, uh, you know, we're in the industry, so we loved the book. But I think anyone that is familiar with the program would, would enjoy your book. You conducted many, many interviews uh, while researching your book, but what I kept coming back to as I was reading your first hand accounts of your personal experience of uh, life in the ad world of the 50s and 60s, etc., was how detailed and specific you were about your own uh, experiences. Did you journal while you were in the business, or do you just have a great memory, or just make all this stuff up? <laughs> I, I did. I used to keep a journal, and finally, when uh, when I moved into a smaller New York apartment, I, I had a large bonfire, so I don't have any more journals. But I, I, do have, I do have good recall, and I did interview hundreds of people, and they, they gave me very, very specific comments that just brought a lot of things 
back to me very vividly. So I think it was a combination. Yeah. Uh, well, let's just jump into a little bit of the book. And, uh, uh, you know, we don't want to overdo it here, but it's a very wonderfully written, entertaining book. Women Breaking In to a Man's World seems to be a, a, an ongoing and uh, theme of your book and certainly the social aspects of uh, what went on from a female perspective and not unlike the, <laughs> the TV series. Talk a little bit about how women would approach getting a job in the advertising business in the 60s. And I think for the younger members of our audience, uh, they might be surprised. Well, I was, I got into advertising by mistake. I had been, I had been working uh, on a quiz show. Uh, um, and like all of the quiz shows in that era, it was rigged. My job was to write the spontaneous dialogue for the contestants and the master of ceremonies uh, and, and rehearse the contestants in their dialogue. This wasn't the answers to the questions of the quiz show. It was the chit-chat beforehand. And, uh, and then along came Charles Van Doren and the big quiz show scandal, which uh, a lot of people saw in the movie called Quiz Show, uh, and Congress knocked all the quiz shows off the air, and so there I was without a job. I had a wonderful husband who was an architect and two children, so I really didn't need to work, but I, for my own psyche, I needed to work. And I knew there was something called advertising, because we had advertisers on the quiz show, and so I put together a little speculative portfolio and uh, went to Ogilvy and Mather, and they hired me right away as a television copywriter. You remember in those days, people specialized. There were people who really could write television, and then there were people who were in print and out of home and radio and didn't really know how to do television. So I was, I was, you know, I was, I was immediately put to work writing slice-of-life commercials. And because I had interviewed all those thousands of contestants, I, I kind of knew how America talked. But that was unusual, I think, as I read in your book. You were, uh, for you to go from uh, the TV business to an interview and be offered a job uh, at Ogilvy, while others, as I recall, were breaking into the business, doing, uh, should we say, menial or, or unbecoming work of a uh, of a, a person that's prepared to want to break into the advertising business, I'm back in those days. Yeah. They were still; they had not yet uh, reached the title assistant. Uh, most women broke into the business by becoming secretaries, and uh, and one of the rare things that Mad Men gets wrong is as soon as a woman was promoted from secretary to copywriter, she wore a hat all day in the office. All women copywriters in the very early 60s wore hats on our heads all day. It was, a, it was a status symbol. It was a badge that you had arrived. I remember keeping that pillbox hat. We all wanted to look like Jackie Kennedy. Of course. A pillbox yeah. hat firmly on my head from 9 to 5. I even wore it to the ladies' room. <laughs> very interesting. There's a recurring theme in the book as well. Uh, they screw you. Sex in advertising, sex in the office. <laughs> Those are some of the chapters of the book. Tell us about that, Jane. <laughs> well, you know, I hard, am not... Hard to ignore. I am not at all surprised you're asking me about sex in the office. That, of course, is chapter two, yes. sex in the office. I wanted, to, I wanted to call chapter three more sex in the office, but <laughs> the publisher talked me out of it. Um, uh, that's what 
I've I've been getting a lot of media attention because of because of the of the frenzy about uh, Mad Men returning, of course, and the uh, the issue that most people uh, who are interviewing me zero in on, as you are, gentlemen, is. Tell it, Jane, tell us about sex in the office. But of and, course. And of course. And so I think I'm having the only X-rated book tour. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they're going to look upon that in Fargo. But anyway. Well, they um, probably welcome it, yeah. <laughs> uh, people have been very, very frank about sharing their experiences. I interviewed a, a wonderful a former copywriter, Linda Bird Frankie who left the advertising business to become a very popular, prominent biographer. She's won a lot of awards. But I said, Linda, you worked for Young and Rubicum, uh, which is supposed to be the prototype agency of the Mad Men agency. And, uh, and uh, it, was, it was considered the hotbed of sex in the 60s. Young and Rubicum was right there on Lexington, uh, I'm sorry, on Madison Avenue, where the Lexington Avenue hotels were in close proximity. And people who worked there said that uh, the, the hotel clerks at the front desk didn't bat an eye if you asked for a key at noon and returned it at 2. And uh, if you met fellow staff members coming through the lobby, you just averted your eyes and pretended that you hadn't seen them. So... Uh, there is Young and Rubicum, which is you know considered a very conservative WASP agency, but all of these things were going on. Linda was working as a secretary. Uh, she had not yet been promoted up to copywriter, and I asked her about sex in the office, and she said, well, Jane, I lost my virginity to the account executive on Lime Jello. <laughs> <laughs> and I said... Well, I guess, Linda, I guess you you won't let me use that in the book, although I'd like to. And she said, ah, I've been married three times. I have nothing to lose. <laughs> so, so there's Linda in Chapter 2. Uh, and then, of course, there was the uh, a current client of mine who's, who would not allow me to use his name, uh, who had a call from a, a client, a new client of his in the Midwest, who asked Don to set him up with a date. And Don mentioned that he had some former girlfriends he thought were very, very nice. And the guy said, not a date, a date. And Don said, oh, I heard the italics in his voice. And so one of the creative people suggested that he buy Screw Magazine because all the, the hookers advertised in it. And so he bought Screw and uh, perused the pages carefully and circled some names that seemed like they were sounded pretty good. He called six of the of the young women because he was a very good account executive. He wanted to make sure he was doing the right thing by his by his client, and uh, so he made little notes saying, you know, promising or a little rough question mark question mark, and uh, and then he finally paid an actual call on one of the ladies to make sure that she looked right and was very pleasant. Uh, paid the money for the client called the client, everything was arranged, the client came into New York, date was, date was over, client called, said everything was fine, Don breathed a big sigh of relief, he had done his job, he was a perfect account executive, and about two weeks later, he uh, put his briefcase on the bed and told his wife his, the paycheck was in there, and she could just go and get it, 
Um, and he heard a shriek from the bedroom, and his wife came out holding the copy of Screw Magazine with all these women circled and his comments, and she said, you bastard. <laughs> and uh, he said, no, no, I, I, I did it for a client of mine. And she said, I see, then you're not only a bastard, you're a pimp. <laughs> <laughs> We've opened up a Pandora's box here with, with that question, and uh, I think this is wonderful and very interesting, too. Mad Women is uh, the book, The Other Side of Life on Madison Avenue in the 60s and beyond. Jane Moss is our very special guest here at The Advertising Show. We're going to continue our conversation in just a minute. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. No matter what shape your stomach's in. Jane Moss is our special guest here on The Advertising Show. Mad Women is the book, The Other Side of Life on Madison Avenue in the 60s and Beyond. Mary Wells Lawrence wrote the foreword to the book. She calls it an honest and intimate and lively picture of life in an agency at uh, this uh, important time. Uh, founding president, by the way, of Wells, Rich Green is, is, is Mary Wells. But uh, Jane Moss, welcome back to The Advertising Show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. It was, uh, I think, about seven years ago was the last time I was with you. You were, and we were, and we all seem like uh, it was yesterday here. We're just Absolutely. picking right back up where we left off. You know, Jane, uh, you agree and you dispel uh, a lot of what we see on Mad Men. If you're a fan of the TV program, you probably often watch it and say, huh, I wonder if that's really the way it, it went uh, down in the 60s in the ad business and, and your book confirms and in some cases uh, illuminates uh, on subject matter that maybe was even more uh, off the charts than, than they display in the, uh, in the program. But let me, let me pick your brain on uh, hearing a list of things that you've seen on Mad Men that are not represented of what truly took place in advertising during the 60s. Well, of, of course, the drinking on Mad Men is is somewhat exaggerated. We never drank in the morning. Uh, we, uh, I do not remember either at Ogilvy and Mather or at Wells Ridge Green that people, that particularly senior men, did not have bottles or decanters or bars sitting on their tables, desks, or credenzas and people did not wander in at 9.30 in the morning and, and, and pour themselves a shot. Mm-hmm. However, they're absolutely right about the three martini lunches. Um, uh, men would invite us women out to lunch, and generally the man would have three martinis, and the woman would have two martinis mm. to start with, and then we would end up with rusty nails, which <laughs> is a lethal combination of scotch and drambouille. <laughs> and people say... Jane, how did you guys go back to work at 2 o'clock? Okay. And I, I say, I, I think what saved us is that we didn't have wine in between. <laughs> <laughs> but but there, was, there was, truly, women didn't go out to lunch every day. The guys did indeed have the three martini lunches five days a week. And women would go out maybe one or two days a week, but I think it was a combination of calorie control 
and work ethic because I think we knew that somebody had to stay there and get the work done. And so uh, very often it was the women creatives who ate out of brown bags and stayed at the office. Well, since you're talking about drinks and lunch, I know there are some uh, establishments that are still around from your day of where uh, advertising people frequented, and then there are some that have uh, since gone away. I think in more recent times, and I don't know if it's still uh, this way, but Michael's was uh, more recently a, a popular place for ad people, and as quickly as things change in New York, some of the uh, old standbys certainly are still around. Take us through some of the hot spots that maybe are still there that you frequented back in the 60s. Well, uh, our two favorite hot spots were, uh, in addition to, to Michael's, there was, oh, well, Ritazzi's, which was is, is no longer there either. Uh, that's where we went for lunch, for those three martini lunches. And at 5 o'clock, everybody congregated in Ritazzi's. It was right across the street from Ogilvy. Uh, the two favorite restaurants for my husband and me at that point were uh, Four Seasons and 21. And, of course, both of those restaurants had very strict uh, dress codes. Men at both restaurants had to be wearing not only a shirt and tie but a jacket as well. Wow. And I remember uh, in the 60s, I was the first woman at Ogilvy to wear a pantsuit to the office. That was considered very daring. Women did not wear pants. And, uh, and I wore a pantsuit to the office, and I remember people asking me if I were on a shoot, because that was the only time you, you wore pants in case you had to climb a ladder to look down from the director's point of view. And I was to meet my husband for dinner at uh, 21, and they wouldn't let me in wearing a pantsuit. This is uh, 21 Club you're referring this to, is right? 21 Club, yep. Yeah. And, I had a chance to uh, go there. Well, I was told that Marlene Dietrich uh, arrived wearing a pantsuit about the same period, and they would not let her in, and she went into the ladies' room and simply removed the pants and came back in a long her long jacket. <laughs> and they had no rule against long jackets, and so they escorted her to a table. But I, I had no such luck. I had to go, We had, Michael and I had to go to some hamburger joint somewhere. You know, uh... Let's talk a little bit about uh, agencies back in the 60s. In the book, you talk about uh, the particular approach an ad agency might take to a client's business, and the agency became known for a particular approach. Before we start naming agencies and talking about their philosophy versus another agency's philosophy, let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, marrying of the copywriter and the art director, something that was novel uh, and unusual back in the early 60s and uh, maybe even the late 50s. I know uh, Bill Birnbach, uh, Doyle Dame Birnbach, is the person that was uh, given credit for that. But explain that concept and, and what how that went about changing the industry. I, I think Bill Birnbach's idea, at least he's certainly credited with the idea of saying that a copywriter and an art director had to work together on all advertising assignments, even radio. It didn't matter whether there was a visual involved or not, the, the two heads concept. Before that, when I first arrived at Ogilvy in 1964, the copywriter was everything. I would originally sit down and write a television spot. I'd write the audio and I'd write the video and then you would take that script and take it to an art director who was really no more than a sketch man. 
and, and he would draw up the pictures following your, your script. And then almost overnight, that changed with the dramatic, dramatic uh, togetherness of the copywriter and art director. And I think it, I think it had a profound effect on advertising and creativity, but I don't think it's so much copywriter and art director. I think it's that two people coming together uh, forced each other to greater heights. I think it was it was much harder to say, well, that's good enough hmm. when you, when you're sitting with somebody else. I I think that Bill Birnbach could have said, put two copywriters on it, or two art directors, or two clients. But I just think two good heads who understand the brand and understand the strategy uh, just come up with better creative than one. You know, one of the nicest things about the advertising show is we get a chance to talk to the folks who are advertising, uh, you know, Lois and, and of course, uh, uh, Jane here as well. But uh, to give today's uh, listeners to the ad show a real sneak peek of what it was really like and what, the, you know, you to me, you can't move forward until you look backward and learn what, what was going on back then and, and seeing uh, the basics of, of advertising and how things were collaborated and how things worked. So it's exciting to have Jane on the, uh, on the show here at the advertising show. Jane, you said there was a get-together for you here uh, just recently, and you had some notables uh, at the get-together as well. Talk about that. Well, my my dear friend and co-author Ken Roman and his wife Ellen uh, threw a, a wonderful party uh, for me on the day the book was published, and uh, a lot of the old guards showed up. Uh, George Lois was there. Jerry Delafamina came. Uh, Charlie Moss, who was of course the creative director and president of Wells Rich Green in its heyday, and wrote "I Love New York" and wrote Flick Your Bick, and a, a wonderful, wonderful copywriter and creative person. And Laurel Cutler, one of the rare women uh, in the Advertising Hall of Fame. And Mary Wells came from the south of France. And I looked at these people all gathered together there in one little clump talking, and I thought, my God, it's the 60s all over again. <laughs> Just, it, was, it was quite heady. You know, you just gave someone else credit for I, what I always have attributed to yourself, Jane, and that is the I Love New York campaign. I know you've talked much about that over the years. You talked about it on our program seven years ago. Uh, are you saying a copywriter came up with the line and then you uh, launched from there and developed the concept, or what? I, but, You know, it, it, this was a very collaborative effort on I Love New York. Uh, Charlie Moss wrote the original commercial, that had people from other states enjoying being in New York. People said, I'm from New Hampshire, but I love New York. I'm from North Carolina, but I love New York. And Milton Glazers, the brilliant, brilliant designer, came in and looked at the rough cut, and our tagline then was, New York, the outdoor state. Uh, but Milton zeroed in on the phrase, I love New York, and created that famous I Heart NY logo. And, uh, and, and then the music man, Steve Carmen came in and wrote the music and featured I Love New York. And so all of these men, you know, can look you in the eye and tell you they're the father of I Love New York, but I can look you in the eye and tell you I'm its only mother. <laughs> and, and, and I I I changed its diapers and gave it its bottles and kind of rocked it in my arms and 
uh, I really I was I was sort of the liaison between the agency and and New York State, and uh, and after working on detergents and toilet bowl cleaners for my whole career, it was <laughs> wonderful to to be working on selling New York State in New York City, and we did help rescue New York City from bankruptcy. So it was, you know, it was quite. Quite an experience. That's a bit of a nice success story, and the the adult child is now doing very well. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, yeah. it did. Turned Mad, out very well. Mad Women, The Other Side of Life on Madison Avenue in the 60s and beyond. The author is Jane Moss, and we've got Jane on the uh, phone out of New York City this morning. We'll continue this interview here in just a moment. Aren't you loving this stuff? It's good. Patricia Bosworth, author of Jane Fonda, The Private Life of a Public Woman, uh, talks about the book here, Mad Women. I read Mad Women in one delicious gulp. Boy, that sounds better than a Starbucks or something, doesn't it? I, I like that. Jane Moss, welcome back to the program. Great to have you here. You know, you have a wonderful story. Uh, you have many wonderful stories, one in particular about uh, Leona Helmsley, and we're going to save that for later in this segment. As I promised, I want to go back to uh, agencies and their approaches to advertising. Back in the early 60s, uh, you had the breakout uh, Doyle Dame Birnbach, known as the quote-unquote creative agency, uh, for their unusual approach to advertising. Many other agencies followed. But back in the day, as you delineate and, and identify in your book, Jane, agencies such as Ogilvy, J. Walter Thompson, Y&R, Ted Bates, they all had a particular uh, image uh, and a, uh, a known way that they approached uh, advertising on behalf of their clients and as a result attracted a particular type of client. This was all known among the industry and among uh, clients that would hire agencies. Take us through uh, those four agencies, for, for example, and how each approached advertising. Well, Doyle Dane Birnbach, of course, uh, invented, started the uh, possibility of, of treating your brand uh, lightly with some frivolity, not taking it as seriously as the Ten Commandments. And it was unheard of to do that. The brands up to that point had been, you know, God and Mother. Uh, and to say Avis is only number two uh, was, was, was a, a revolution to say uh, Volkswagen uh, is a lemon was a revolution. So that that was the creative uh, the creative revolution happening before everybody's eyes. Then there was the Ted Bates uh, school of advertising, which is to repeat something about a thousand times. Uh, 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 Anison fights headaches four ways. Fights headaches four ways. Fights headaches four, 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 four ways. Yeah. You know, and accompanied by hammers on the head. It that it was that kind of advertising that got advertising a bad name. Mm -hmm. But it, it 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 worked. It also worked. And then there was the Ogilvy School, the school I was brought up in by David himself. And he, of course, had come out of a research background. He had worked for George Gallup. And he believed that you would sell products by, by getting to know the consumer. And he thought the consumer was a very smart cookie. Uh, and he wrote the great line, of course, the consumer is not a moron, she is your wife. Mm -hmm. um, and so his advice to us uh, creative people was, first, immerse yourself in research 
and then immerse yourself in a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> so those were really the three schools, the, the revolution, the creative revolution school, the hammers on the head, bang, 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 and the more reasoned uh, research approach. Yeah, and a lot of the CPG product, uh, consumer product good uh, clients were um, attracted to the Ted Bates approach because they tended to follow one another uh, in that regard. And yet Ogilvy was always known to have the more quality uh, clientele because of the more classy approach. And DDB took uh, took anyone that was willing to take a risk uh, and and usually benefited the client benefited from from being risky. One of your chapters, uh, chapter ten, is entitled "The Queen and I," and uh, just to set this up, uh, you were offered an opportunity as many agency people. Uh, dream about, and that is to start your own ad agency, in effect, uh, uh, beginning as an in-house agency for Leona Helmsley and the Helmsley Hotel, uh, and it went uh, completely downhill from there. <laughs> Tell us about that, Jane. Well, I, Leona offered me the chance to, to be her agency, their agency, the Helmsley Hotels, and she said, Darling, I'm going to help you get a lot of clients, and I'll make you very famous, and we'll make you a big agency. And I believed her. Now, Leona, of course, was known as the Queen of Mean, and you know she ended up serving a, a prison sentence uh, for tax fraud. But I, I never put two and two together, uh, and I thought it was a wonderful idea, and I, I opened my own agency uh, for Leona, and I lasted for seven short months. Uh, someone told me later, seven months, that's the gestation period of a pig. <laughs> and, and the stories that you tell, and you're going to have to buy the book to, to, to know more about this, but the stories that you tell, the insider view of that relationship and many other relationships are uh, quite entertaining. And uh, for those that have been around for a while, you may recall the TV spots that feature uh, Leona. And uh, as you say in your book, uh, you would go to Leona, and of course, many agency people have uh, have seen the ego of the client and the CEO, the chairman, whatever the case may be, and realize, okay, I could come up with something clever here, or I could just feature the client in the spots, and uh, they'll definitely go for it. And Leona uh, said, well, I really don't have time for this, according to Jane's book, uh, and I really don't want to be bothered with this, but Jane, if you want me in the spots, okay. And I said, Leona, of course... We want you in the spot. And, uh, and uh, Leona always bought herself in an ad. If I showed her an ad that didn't have Leona in it, she would throw it on the floor and stamp on it. <laughs> Truly, stamp on it. And I'd say, I guess you don't like that ad, huh, Leona? Yeah. And, you know, gentlemen, don't believe everything you read about Leona, though. She was worse than that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I thought you were going to say the other way. I'm but telling you, the, 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 the book, and as Jane sometimes quotes in the book, uh, normally I wouldn't want to say anything bad about this person, but they're dead, so what the hell, and then she goes into it. You know, talk a little bit about the inequities of, of being a woman in the ad business as we wrap up today's interview. You, you talk about uh, uh, the particular types of clients that agencies allowed women to work on and those that they did not, uh, client meetings whether you would be invited or not invited, uh, these kind of things. Talk a little bit about that, well, Jay. Well, in the 60s, of course, there was a sort of a ghetto that, of, of products that women were allowed to work on. Men made all the decisions. The clients were all men, and the agencies were run by all men. 
and until Mary Wells appeared on the scene in the very late 60s, early 70s. So uh, women were not allowed to work on, on car advertising because men figured we didn't know how to drive. Uh, we weren't allowed to work in financial because men thought we didn't know how to balance a checkbook. And we weren't allowed to work on um, liquor advertising because liquor is what they used to seduce us, so we clearly didn't know about that either. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were, we were allowed to work on things that, like, like uh, oh, detergents, and as I, I worked on vanished toilet bowl cleaner, mm-hmm. and, you know, all the glamorous, all the glamorous products. Mm-hmm. And you describe uh, uh, feminine, 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 feminine napkins uh, meetings where all the men from the client side and the men from the agent side are sitting there, and you were in on that meeting, as I recall, and they would all look to you and like, okay, Jane, what's the answer here or whatever? Well, yes. And, and, uh, uh, for instance, my first meeting at Clairol, which, of course, was a company that, that man- yeah. manufactured only women's products, and all the people at Clairol were men, and everybody else from Ogilvy, my agency, were all men. And I was the only woman, the only woman in the room. And at a given point, everybody would turn to me and say, "Well, Jane, what do women think about this?" And of course, I was speaking for all the women in the United States, and so I would tell them what women thought about it. <laughs> what did they know? They would accept me and uh, my ideas. But but uh, it was tough breaking in, I, I, I write about the first time I, I was uh, assigned to American Express, the first woman creative assigned to the American Express account, and uh, they told me I might be met with a little bit of hostility, uh, and I went down, and everybody was terribly nice to me, including the big boss, who pulled out a chair, greeted me wonderfully, and I thought, this isn't going to be so bad. And he said, did you forget your steno pad, dear? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, the insight that you give to to the way things were and, and mentioning about Clairol, um, you know, you you point out in your book that uh, prior to Clairol uh, announcing the, uh, not announcing, but launching the campaign, only your hairdresser knows for sure, as I recall. Um, prior to that, uh, if you had uh, dyed hair, you were, you know, a woman of the evening or certainly not of, uh, of a high level of uh, quality uh, uh, anyway, and so that particular campaign helped uh, change the social attitudes towards uh, dyeing your hair and so forth. Does she or doesn't she? Yes. By legendary Shirley Polakoff, yes. Right, and so those kinds of insights, I think, that you provide in your book are, are very uh, enlightening. And I'm envisioning, uh, Jane, a walk-on cameo appearance on an yes. upcoming Mad Men episode. Exactly. Not only Jane, but what about George and, and Well, Mary? George, I could never air that, and it would be an editing nightmare. But Jane, I think, would behave yeah. herself. Have they approached you? Uh, no, they haven't, but I'm waiting. I'm expecting the call any minute. Yeah, well, they they listen to our show, so if you're listening, uh, I'll be handling all business affairs for Jane Moss from this point forward, and my number's 15%, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny you mention that, Brad, because that would be an absolute phenomenal thing, especially for the ad industry folks to have yeah. Jane on this television well, show. it could be a cameo, and uh, so. only the insiders would know. And, of course, after her book, uh, becomes one of the uh, best sellers on the New York Times list. Uh, they'll be contacting her, I'm sure. From your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, we are unfortunately out of time here, but what a lovely opportunity to learn more about the book here. We know a lot about you, and now we know even a little bit more, and so our listeners do as well. Mad Women, The Other Side of Life on Madison Avenue in the 60s. 
and beyond. The show is back on the air. The book is out there, and you're probably going to see it as, as you know, airports and bookstores and, and uh, uh, everywhere. But uh, go get the book. And, and uh, thanks for writing this, Jane. This is a great book. Thank you so much. What a, what a fun interview. Thanks. The Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth is being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show, a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, powered by the good folks at Shippel. That's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com and a platform called Tendency. That's our website. That's why it works so good. Check it out. S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. The Advertising Show. We will talk to you again real soon. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications. And it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.